people and excited about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, why don't we open up to Isaiah 59? That's where we'll be spending some time this morning. I'm going to read and then pray and go from there. So we read together. Isaiah 59. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers. They spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads, and no one who walks along them will know peace. So justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We growl like bears, and we moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it's far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. So he was appalled that no one, there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sin, declares the Lord. And as for me... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. My words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we long to hear you this morning. We long to hear this Christmas story, the story of our need and the story of your promise 
of a little baby boy to be born in Bethlehem who would be our Savior. God, open our hearts that we may hear you and be glorified this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think we can agree that it doesn't work to start in the middle of a story. Imagine trying to open up a new book for the first time and begin reading from its middle pages. How are you to make any sense of what's going on? Who are these characters? What are these conversations about? Why do they matter and why do they act in a certain way? It all can become very confusing very quickly. You can't just walk into the middle of a movie or a new series and make sense of what is happening. Some of you have tried and some of you experienced others trying. Who is he? What did she do? Where are they going? It can all become very frustrating very quickly. You can't just jump into the middle of a conversation and actually say things that are appropriate, sensitive, or significant without knowing where that conversation has already been. You just can't start in the middle of a story. And the same is true for Christmas. Over the course of these next three weeks, we'll be unpacking the scandal of a little baby boy born in a lowly manger to a teenage mother in a backwards village called Bethlehem. But this little baby boy would be the light of lights in this dark world, the king of kings, the savior of all, and the gift that Christmas is all about. But if you start in the Christmas season with a baby born in Bethlehem, you're not starting at the beginning, you're actually starting in the middle. And there'll be things in the story that just don't make sense. For instance, why all the celebratory songs of the angels? Why the fearful anticipation of the shepherds? or the inquisitive journey of the kings, or the political panic of Herod, you find yourself asking, why, why, why? Might I suggest it's because we're in the middle. My hope this morning is that we would get to the roots of the story, that we would be able to paint the backdrop of the narrative, and that we would be able to set the scene into which Jesus will come with humility and glory and power. My prayer is that we'd be able to see the Christmas story as being set in a broken world, filled with broken people, but with a faithful God. That the story begins with a desperate need and a hope-filled promise. To try and paint these pictures, let's turn again to Isaiah 59 together. So a bit of context to Isaiah 59. The children of Israel had been in captivity in Babylon. They'd been in exile, away from the promised land. But they've now come back to Jerusalem, the land which God had given them, And it's a complete mess. There are no city walls. There's no more temple, no place of worship or a symbol of communion between them and God. There's no central government. There's no enforceable set of laws, no obvious leadership. There's no social order, no justice, just violence in the streets, massive poverty, just complete, fundamental, widespread social breakdown. It's a mess. But it's into this mess into this darkness, into this brokenness that God speaks. And his word is sober, and it's honest, but it's full of grace and full of hope. So let's go to verse 1 together. Our passage this morning kind of reads as a bit of a, a courtroom. God, through the prophet, is answering the charge that's laid against him by his people. It would seem that Israel are in the midst of a crisis, And in their desperation, they believe that God has forgotten them and he's forsaken them. 
He's not strong enough to deliver them, or he won't hear them in their distress. These people are in desperate need. But yet the prophet insists that the reason for their plight is not some inadequacy in God. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. No, on the contrary, their plight is a result of their own sin. But it's your iniquities that have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The issue here is not with God, it's with the people. And we see why in verses 3 to 8. In a quick snapshot in short, Israel is broken. We read that they're characterized by violence, falsity, injustice, and conspiracy. Their hands are stained with blood. Their fingers with guilt. Their lips mutter lies. Their tongue wicked things. Their feet are swift to rush into sin, sprinting to shed innocent blood. And from their wombs come evil, trouble, and death. Truth has stumbled in their streets. Justice has driven back, and righteousness is far from this people. There's rebellion, treachery, revolt, and oppression that's flooding their hearts, turning them against their creator and their neighbor. In verses 5 and 6, if you look, the prophet likens Israel's condition to that of vipers and adders, snakes, and spiders. And what did these snakes and spiders have in common? Well, both possess this deadly poison, inflicting excruciating pain on whomever they bite. And as these toxins flood the bloodstream, killing the cells, it leads to an agonizing death. The picture Isaiah is painting is of a socially cancerous, malignant, unjust, and broken people. And this is God's diagnostic of the people. Instead of them accusing God, he's now accusing them. In fact, their need is far greater than they had first realized. But it would be amiss for us to stop with Israel alone, because in the New Testament, Paul uses this very passage, verses 7 and 8, to diagnose the entire human condition. He sums it up like this. Their feet, referring to us, are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark our ways, and the way of peace we don't know. Paul would move us to see that Israel's problem, Israel's sin problem is not just their own. Sin is a human problem. It's a me problem. It's, it's a you problem. And is this not the diagnosis of the world that we live in today? We need to only leave these doors and open our windows and look into our very neighborhoods and the surrounds. What do we see? People ravished with poverty greater and greater economic disparity, the rich getting richer and richer, more comfortable, more isolated, while the poorer get poorer. Do we see this? Do we see the violence that runs rampant in our communities, the plague of violence against our women and children, the abuse of power, the corruption that floods our industries and our political institutions? Do we see this? Do we see the hatred between people over differences in race and in intelligence? In social status, sexuality, political affiliations, do we see that our age is marked by fear, anxiety, polarization, and injustice? Do we see this today? But I think there's a temptation to think that the biggest problems, or even my biggest problems, or deepest problems in life, are outside of me. 
not inside of me. But God, through this passage, would move us to see that the problem is inside of me, and the problem exists inside of you. You see, there's something inside of me that is dark and dangerous. It kidnaps my thoughts, it diverts my desires, it distorts my words and drives my behavior. The problem that most needs to be fixed is inside of me, not outside. And the Bible would say that that's sin. Would you hear God's diagnostic today? Well, after this heavy reflection and accusation of God, this leads to a confession. Let's look with me in verse 9. So notice the change. It says, so justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it's far away. In these verses, we see a description of a people who've completely lost their way. It's a description that when you're in a moment and you've lost your way, it's like someone has turned off the lights in your life. Everything is dark, you're blind, it's pitch black, and you have to move about the walls trying to find a way out, but to no avail. The prophet is describing people whose eyes have been spiritually darkened to the light of God, and to the light of life, a people who are blind, lost, and utterly hopeless. And I think this is a significant moment, because in this moment, when you've lost your way, you stand at a crossroads where you can decide. Either you'll point the finger at someone else, you'll dismiss it and go the other way, or you'll make a confession. And this is what happens in verse 12. For our offenses are many in your sight. Our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs. Essentially, these people are saying, yeah, God, we accept your diagnosis. I accept it. I'm the problem. It's me. And once you get to that place, you're in an utterly hopeless position. Because you're saying, God, I've got this big, deep, abiding problem that I can't solve. I've got this big, deep, abiding need that I can't do anything about. And in that place, there is hopelessness. The people of Israel know the situation is desperate. And to our utter astonishment, it's in this desperate place, when we realize that we are hopeless because of sin and before God, that this, in fact, is a mark of grace. That in our hopelessness, there is, in fact, hope. I think one of the greatest dangers for us as people is to think that we're okay. Think we don't need any help, we don't need any grace. We don't feel the weight of our sin, the sorrow it brings to the heart of God, the pain it causes the ones we love, or the offense that it causes against a holy and just creator. But when we think we're okay... God's diagnosis doesn't make sense to us. These verses don't make sense to us. And it's actually in that place where we are truly hopeless. 
But when we realize our dire state, when we realize our desperate need, when we realize that we can't solve our greatest problem or satisfy our greatest need, when the weight of sin causes us sorrow, to buckle at our knees and say, God, I'm hopeless. In that place, there is true hope. There is hope when God's grace causes us to buckle in agony, in honest confession, horribly aware of our sin, of its insidiousness and its pervasive power in our lives and our communities. So, first and foremost, the Christmas story should remind us of our great need, of our desperate need, our need for forgiveness, our need for redemption, our need for restoration, our need for God to step in to act and redeem our need for Jesus. And where does this passage go? How does it end? It ends with the ending that we all long for and hope for. It ends with a promise. Read with me together at the, uh, the second part of verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, so he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. It's into this dire situation, into this hopelessness, into this people's desperate need that God will act. He doesn't turn his back on Israel. He doesn't turn his back on you. He doesn't turn his back on me. He doesn't walk away and says, I've had it. They've gone too far. I'm just going to have to wipe them out or leave them alone. No. What does he do? We read that he sends his own arm to achieve salvation, his own righteousness. God will do for Israel what Israel was unable to do on their own. He will meet their needs. He will step in their place. And he will redeem and restore them back to himself. God is saying to you and me this morning that when you're in this moment where you have utterly no hope, nowhere to look, when you've realized the weight of your sin and your great need before God, and in this desperation, God will send hope. But it won't be a different situation at work. It won't be a new human relationship to fulfill you or even a different location that will be better off. No, God will send you hope in the person of a little baby boy born in a manger. He will send a redeemer who is full of justice and grace, coming to restore his people back to himself and back to one another. Read with me verses 20 and 21. The redeemer will come to Zion, and those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart you from you. My words that I've put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Do you see we have a promised, the promise of a coming redeemer who will cause God's people to once again repent. Through him, people would turn from their sin and be restored to a righteous relationship with God and his people. And here is the promise. Here is the hope. And here is the story of Christmas. 
The Christmas story is a story of hope coming into the world. That's why the angels sang those glorious songs. It's why the wise men came in worship. And it's why the shepherds were blown away, because hope had invaded into earth in the person of our Lord Jesus. Hope had come. Hope that had been so lost, hope that had been destroyed, is now returning as a little baby. With a little baby boy lying in a lowly manger, born to a teenage mother in a backwards village in Bethlehem, the promise of a redeemer would be fulfilled. And our greatest need, that of our sin before God, would be, would be paid in full. This morning, I want to leave us just some thoughts to apply. Perhaps you're here for the first time and or even just investigating the claims of Christ. And I can imagine that a sermon like this could be quite heavy, quite hard, and you could get defensive. But I pray that you would hear these words, that these words would lead you as they would lead me to repent and confess of the injustice in my heart and the injustice of the world that we live in. But I pray that these words would also fill you with hope. Christian brother and sister, would you be filled with hope knowing that God's promise was achieved, that his son did come, and that our sin was paid for? In our struggle with sin, know that it has been won. With a little baby boy lying in a manger, our salvation is fully secured, our sin is fully paid for, and our need is fully met. That's the story of Christmas. The promised Redeemer has arrived. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we admit that we come to you in a hopeless situation when we consider the weight of our sin and the weight of sin in the world. Lord, give us honest hearts to reflect on these truths, to not dismiss them, but to have our hearts be changed by them. Would we cling to hope this morning? Would we recognize that Christmas begins with our dire need and your promised Redeemer coming to restore us? Jesus, it's because you came as a little baby. It's because you lived the perfect life and died the death that we should have died that we can be in relationship with you. We praise you this morning. We are thankful for who you are. Amen.